Thank you for tuning into this episode of Question This Life. You can listen to the podcast at questionthislife.com as well as all of the main podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe and get involved. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to the show. If this is the first time you're listening to the show, welcome. It's lovely to have you here. Have a look at all the other uh, episodes in whatever platform you found this on, and I'm sure that you'll find a good grasp of the kinds of topics and uh, the mindset and the view of this uh, show, and find something that tickles your fancy, you know? Um, There's a lot of different topics that get considered and discussed on this show, often usually by uh, me, your host here alone, um, nattering on and trying to uh, get to the bottom of these things by myself, or uh, occasionally with guests, and I've had a few guests on the show too. So have a look, check out the different topics. There's things ranging all the way from um, ancient history, lost ancient civilizations, lost high technology, lucid dreaming, uh, psychedelics, uh, meditation, breathing exercises, the Wim Hof method, um, holotropic breathing, um, megalithic architecture, out-of-place ancient artifacts. And more recently, there's been a lot more uh, discussed in this show regarding my other uh, passion and my other work, let's say, which is uh, stand-up comedy. So I'm, I go into a little bit of the behind the scenes, let's say, the kind of uh, the, the bare bones, the thinking and the, the current process that I'm following and all of the experiences that I'm going through in my journey as a, a stand-up comedian, let's say. So I'm sure there's something there for you if you... Uh, if this is the first time you're listening to the show, and if you've been coming to the show uh, often, and this is you returning and listening to another episode, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for listening. It means a lot. It really is great. It's an awesome part of uh, running this podcast to look at the uh, stats and to see where everyone is based that's listening to this. Usually there's a lot of um, people, of course, from the English-speaking world. You know, there's listeners from New Zealand, America, England, Scotland, the the whole of the UK, um, Australia, Canada, etc. And then there's also a whole bunch of people listening from all corners of the, the, the world. So we've got people from the Seychelles that are always tuning in. I wish I could uh, know who you guys are and, and give you a, a personal shout out. But um, I see you every single week popping up on the uh, on the stats. So good to see you again. And uh, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure doing the show. So let's get into it, guys. It's been, um, there has been a little bit of a break in the show. And the primary reason for that is that I've been away. As I mentioned in the podcast, uh, the last time, the last episode, um, I was planning to go back home finally after all this uh, trouble with the restrictions and being able to get back and having to do this, that and the other in order to make it work. Um, I found a way to make it work, and long story short, I managed to get back home. So um, I went to uh, the south of England, like a little bit farther away from London, um, and saw my family. I spent a lot of great time with them, so I have some reflections on on that and the importance of that, you know, building these uh, connections and relationships with your your family members. Um, And then I also something I really, really am looking forward to talk about on this episode is I uh, managed to essentially plan this whole trip to the to um, south the south of England, I managed to plan a road trip within the south of England. And the key uh, theme of the whole trip, you know, the 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 things that I stopped to see along the way, and all of the different things that I was taking in on the trip were based in this 
uh, lost ancient high technology, megalithic and neolithic structures, uh, mounds, quoits, henges, uh, you know, you name it. I saw I saw a lot of stuff, a lot of really great stuff um, when I was on this trip. So I'm going to get into that a little bit now. And uh, let's just start with the, the importance of family as the kind of main topic of this this beginning part. So I'd mentioned this before that I'd had some time, you know, it'd been a good few years since I'd been able to go back home for a multiple number of reasons. Of course, we all know the big one, the the restricted travel at the moment. So that was something that was kind of causing the problems uh, primarily. But it was really great that that was uh, surpassable, let's say, and I found a way to make it work. And I got back and really just absolutely adored spending time with my family you know my immediate circle um there's a couple of kids in that uh zone and it's just amazing how much they change over like you know it'd been like two-ish years two and a half years since the last time I saw them and they're just so much more uh advanced and developed uh you know mentally physically they're huge they're growing physically but they're also I was having some really, really deep, intense conversations with my seven-year-old niece. Um, I found that so fascinating. It really kind of stuck with me just how deep a thinker this little person is. You know, it's it's amazing. She's got, like, worries and she overthinks and she's she's always kind of abstractly and philosophically thinking. The other, the other kid is he's a little bit younger, but he's much more kind of straightforward. You, you're just talking about the things that you're talking about, and they're, you're on a kind of one level. But um, she, the seven year old, is just so insightful, so uh, like I, that's the best way I can say I could describe it. She's a deep thinker. She was asking me questions about like death and life and death and what happens when we die and. Um, she she wrapped she has wrapped her head around the fact that I live far away I live like a flight away but she didn't quite get that she was like but I don't understand like if you're living there and you say that this is home then why are you living there and I'm like well you've got to leave your home sometimes you know there's other stuff around the world that you need to uh to follow sometimes whether it's a job or a passion or a partner or whatever the reason is there's so much out there to explore and you're going to get to explore it all one day as well if you want you're always going to be able to travel and to uh you know see other places and absorb other cultures and so on i'm trying to kind of like impart that a little bit to her but of course i recognize that to her it's just like you know this guy who i get on so well with and we have a great time when he's here and then he just disappears and then we have to talk, you know, every few days or whatever through the, the video call. And it's it's just not enough. It's not what I want. And it, it doesn't really make sense in my framework. You know, I'm kind of empathizing with her on that totally. Um, it made me think like, I remember thinking some deep thoughts when I was uh, like five, six, seven. Definitely, I remember thinking, you know, what happens when we die? Where did we come from? I was already kind of questioning some things back then. I mean, I, if you listen to episode one of this show, I mentioned that my whole childhood, I felt like I was questioning things and not quite understanding what's going on and thinking that there's always a deeper explanation. There's always like more information to, to learn and to know. And that we were, I was getting, I felt like a kind of spoon-fed, very specific, this is the way, this is the way it's always been. Um, you know, almost like an aggravated response to having an inquisitive mind and a philosophical outlook. Um, but, for, but I don't think it was that, that uh, crystal clear and formulated as, as, as hers is. It really was quite something. Um, and uh, the other thing that we spoke about as well, along, a, lot, a lot with my uh, little niece, was her nightmares and her sleep in general. So I've had, I've done a lot of episodes in this show about lucid dreaming and dreaming, archetypal dreaming, dream diaries, you know, the, the ways to trigger yourself into a lucid dream, sleep paralysis, 
all these uh, things that that happen when we sleep that most people in the world don't really think twice about, you know. I would say, like, most people probably just go to sleep and wake up. They don't think about it. If they dream, they think it was just a weird kind of uh, a thought or like a, uh, a little movie that played in between their ears while they were sleeping, and then they wake up rested or unrested and then go to work, whatever. Um, what What's been forgotten is that dreaming and the all the ins and outs of dreaming and all these different states and the different things that can happen and how they affect you and so on, Ancient cultures all around the world put so much stock in that stuff. They really, really cared about it. They really cared about, um, you know, the, the the different states of consciousness that we're in. And one of the most important ones in as, as a recurring theme in many cultures is the dream state. I read that the people who are native to Australia, uh, the tribal, um, you know, nomadic peoples that are still very much there now, they speak and their elders speak of... Uh, the waking world as a dream, like what we are in right now, this physical world, you're listening to me through this whatever digital medium that you're listening to me on, uh, we are part of a dream, a, a collective consciousness, let's say, this physical reality is like a dream. And then it's when, when you go into the dream world, what we call the dream world, perhaps you're going on to something that's closer to actual reality. You know, that's a, a pretty trippy thought to think about. But I've gone into it a little bit on the other episodes about my experiences with dreaming and lucid dreaming. I used to have terrible nightmares as a kid. I had like night terrors. I um, I remember I would have like recurring nightmares. I would pray every night with, with you know, really like squeezing my eyes shut and my my hands like clasped together, like begging the powers that be, you know, the higher power. I, I, I did believe in a specific denomination of God back then. I don't so much anymore. Um, but I remember like praying on my hands and knees and in the bed, just like, please, please don't make me have a bad one. And don't make me have a good one that then turns into a bad one. And uh, this niece of mine, I remember a few years ago, she said something to me similar to that. She said, you know, but there's always good ones and bad ones. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, sometimes I can't sleep and I wake up and uh, I, and I, I'm so scared and stuff. And so for the last few years, I've been speaking to her, trying to, trying to, you know, be like a kind of sounding board that she can, she can speak to, because I, I have some experience with this. I, I myself have struggled with it. And, it's only in my more recent years that I've found lucid dreaming and these uh, techniques that you can use to to come out of your, um, you know, nightmare or sleep paralysis or just woozy dream state. And you, act, you can actually start playing like an active role in the dream and to learn from the stories that your dreams are telling you. So she had a, a kind of a recurring dream that she was getting kidnapped and she could really describe the, the, the evil character that was doing it. And, you know, the way she described it, she was saying like, and, uh, you know, this this man in red, and she's she's looking at me with this kind of glazed look in her eye, you know, like a Vietnam vet or something. She's just like, and this, you know, and then he, he had this like red and black marks on his face and he he offered me this thing, this card, and he said, if you take the card, then we'll be friends and you can come in the car. And she was, she was kind of describing this and it, it, it made me, it shook me to my core. You know, I was thinking it, it felt so real what she was describing. Like that's it. That's how real it was to her. You know, this is a, a dream in, in her world. But for all intents and purposes, she's felt that feeling of someone to coming after her, coming to get her. Um, and she could really, really intensely describe the look of this person's, uh, you know, this 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 evil dream character's face and, and the way they looked and they carried themselves. The way she described it, it kind of sounded to me like Darth Maul or something, you know, that the Star Wars character. Um, Darth Maul is the one, like the red kind of devilly looking guy with the spikes uh, in his head and he has the lightsaber that's red on both ends. Um I don't remember much more about him, but 
very kind of like intimidating, badass looking Star Wars character, Darth Maul. I think that's who she was uh, essentially describing. And side note, George Lucas and, uh, you know, that, that, that whole universe, there's so much occult symbolism and uh, deep, deep knowledge of the ancient past and ancient history and like controversial ancient uh, civilizations and so on that's deeply incorporated into those stories you know things about our reality the nature of our reality uh how things uh you know the the force and all this stuff i mean all of that is 101 esotericism um so yes there's a a wonderful hollywood story woven through woven through all of these uh different films but you know if if you look at that film you can you, you just need to look at it through the lens of symbolism and esotericism and it's all there it's 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 pretty mental so it wouldn't surprise me if they've modeled darth maul on a type of demon that humans see in their dream dream state you know that's is that kind of crazy to 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 take it the other way around i don't know maybe but um anyway i found it very very intense having those conversations and i tried a couple of these techniques that uh i'd read about and i'd heard about to help kids to battle these these evil nightmares or to at least find a way to come to terms with them. So one of the things that we tried, which was uh, really, um, I would say, productive, it seemed like it had, it had helped her, was you allow the kid to uh, explain the, 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 the nightmare in detail. And that's quite a scary thing so you know you got to do it calmly we did it we sat down we were outside it was a nice sunny day we were just talking openly and then it kind of flowed into it and she opened up and she told me the story about this this character that was trying to take her and then this other one where they're like you know there's like people chasing her and it's like a kind of like an army of weird monster type characters and stuff and I was like, okay, so you you absorb all of that information as an adult, and you kind of you you start to paint the picture, you paint the story in your mind, and then the exercise is that you do a kind of like a role play, like a theater task. Um, it's something that I did all the way through through school, and I'm doing a little bit now with the improv side of things in the stand up, um, but essentially, I was playing the character of the you know, the, the, the one that she's fearing in the dream. She's playing herself in the dream. And we're, we're, we're restarting the, the story. And the idea is that because we're doing this in this kind of safe setting and it's someone that she trusts who's, who's the, uh, the protagonist in the role play, that you, you go through the, the story of the nightmare and then you change the story. So, for example... Um, I pretended to be in the the army of people that's coming to chase her and to attack her and her family or whatever the the the, the exact nightmare was. Um, so I was like, okay, so we start, and I'm that guy that was coming to to attack the the home that you're living in with your family. So uh, action, let's go. So hello, uh, I'm here to attack you, and then I taught her. In those dreams, when you speak to these characters, you can be strong. You can be just as strong as you are in real life. You don't just because they look scary, they sound scary, it feels scary, doesn't mean that they have any more uh, control or power than you in the dream at all. It doesn't mean that this is your dream. You are the one who's dreaming this dream. I don't know what the reality of dreams is, but when you're in your dream, you can. Uh, but you can be play a really active part in it, and uh, you know I didn't know that as well as a kid. I used to just be taken on these long journeys and these long stories in the dream. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Now as an adult, I have a much better grip on it, and I can kind of, uh, you, for lack of a better word, control it a little bit. You know, you can, you can, if if something is turning badly in the dream or you, you know, you're, you're getting aggro of someone, or they won't leave you alone, you can turn around and ask them, like, what do you want? Why are you leaving? Why won't you leave me alone? Why are you chasing me? What's your, what's the problem with you? Jeez, what's like, what's your issue? Why are you going around terrorizing me? And very often the, the dream characters answer, you know, or, or they just disappear and fade away. So 
I'm trying to instill this idea that she can be strong and she can really say like, leave me alone. Don't, don't scare me. I'm not scared of you. And then you kind of go to the scariest thing there is and you, you say, look, I'm strong. You can't touch me. Um, and, uh, so we did this little role play and this time, instead of just me being the scary thing that was in the dream and then her kind of just accepting it, she stood up to me. So I was like, I've come to attack you. And she's like, why are you attacking me? And I was like, uh, I don't really know, actually. Uh, it's just kind of what we're doing. I'm here with my army and uh, we came to attack. I'm also a little bit confused right now, to be honest, now that you asked me. And then she she really clocked it and she was like, yeah, well, you're doing this all the time and I don't like it. It's not nice, you know, and I can't remember exactly how it went. But long story short, um, she was like smiling and laughing by the end of it. And I feel like the the tip, I've got this from a, a, a blog about lucid dreaming and, uh, um, you know, nightmares and so on. The tip here is that you're, you're, you're caking into your subconscious. You're kind of like... <clears throat> you're empowering this uh, this person's subconscious to remember this scenario instead of the previous nightmares. So you're not allowing this story to just grow legs and become this horrible, evil monster over, over years and years and years of nightmares. And you're kind of like inserting this new uh, outlook that these characters are actually not scary. They're weak. They're weak if you stand up to them. They're only scary because you allow them to be scary. And if you if you just stand up to them in the dream, I know this might sound far-fetched to some people who are listening, but bear with me. If you stand up to them in the dream, they will back down. Now, if you found that part interesting, uh, I found that so fascinating. And I, I really hope that I helped um, my little niece. And I'll, I speak to her very regularly, several times a week, um, catching up with the family. So I will be keeping an eye on that and seeing how the that uh, pans out with with her sleep and so on. But um, if you're interested in that topic, there's several episodes in this uh, catalogue for Question This Life where I talk about um, my experiences with lucid dreaming and all of these different techniques. Um, the great work done by Robert Wagner, uh, who's an amazing dream expert, lucid dream expert. I bought a new book. Uh, the name is escaping me right now of who, who wrote it. Um, about dreams in actually one of the uh, uh, the gift shops in the megalithic sites that I visited in England. So I'm going to give that a read and then uh, report back if there's any other interesting insights. Um, speaking of books, quick segue before we go on to the megalithic sites that I saw in England. I've been reading a great book, absolutely great book. I don't know if anyone is listening to this, has heard of it, read it uh you know it's 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 really got a lot of hype at the moment it's sold out in amazon and everything it's called the sovereign individual it was written a long time ago in the 90s um and it's essentially the musings of someone who is really truly deeply analyzing the impact that the digital age, as they call it, what we are in now, this technology era, is going to have on individuals and society. And in the 90s, this, the, you know, the authors of this book were uh, foreshadowing a lot of the stuff that we're seeing today. Um, the, the demise of the nation state, the fracturing of uh, big uh you know, m massive institutions like the EU and all these other things that are having people separating from them and, you know, people trying to trying to splinter out instead of building bigger and bigger and bigger groups. Um, he, uh, in, in the book, he talks a lot about how um, this kind of like mega politics, national politics, the, this era that we're living in now, this kind of government era that we're living in now, its days are numbered and there's a million reasons why the you know this the 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 inventions and the um the ease that, that people have now to do everything that they need to do with essentially just their phone just something that you can put in your pocket 
with my phone that is in my pocket, I can film in 4K, I can call anywhere in the world, I can do my taxes, I can make a video, like not just filming, but like the full edit uh, and and exporting and sharing and then posting it and then you can go live and stream your 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 phone uh, footage to anyone in the world. Essentially, what what you can do with this technology is limited only by your own values and your own idea of what is possible. With three or four iPhones and a good internet connection, you could probably take over the world like that. That's the level of uh, access that we have now in our in our pockets. Um, and he also, they foreshadowed things like cryptocurrency and, uh, the, uh, the rise of nationalism, um, and all this other stuff that's just so, so, uh, interesting that it was, this book was written in the nineties and it, it just hits the nail on the head on so many things. So definitely give it a read if you haven't already. And yeah, the last thing I wanted to talk about on this, uh, the Big Return podcast episode is uh, the sites that I saw. So, of course, you can't go to south, uh, the south of England, uh, megalith hunting, Neolithic hunting, without stopping at Stonehenge. So, Stonehenge was great. I've been there a few times before, but not since I really got into these topics um, with, with, you know, as, as a passion. I was like loosely interested in Stonehenge as a, as a site. I always kind of was drawn to it somehow. Sorry about that. Just had to, uh, speaking of phones and technology, I uh, moved my Samsung phone and I heard a little rattling sound. I was like, what the hell is that? Um, this thing is pretty much my livelihood. So I Googled it and it turns out that it's actually the camera sometimes rattles a little bit, uh, all the little moving parts. So I hope that's okay. But anyway, I digress. Stonehenge. So I hadn't been back to Stonehenge for, for quite a few years and definitely not since I got into this topic of, you know, megalithic structures, lost ancient high technology, all of these different things that have been spoken about multiple times on the show. Um, and it was different. It was different. It felt different. It, it, it the, the, the place itself, it felt like it impacted me differently. I always had a, a weird um, sense of like, a, 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 like I was being drawn there, you know, a couple of times. Um, when I was very young, I remember having a photo of Stonehenge and, uh, thinking really like, oh, I really want to go and visit that one day. And then when I finally was there, I remember feeling a bit weird, feeling like, you know, there was a kind of a presence or something. I don't know. I remember it feeling a bit odd when I went there before, when I was younger. Um, but this time going there, it definitely felt different. Um, one thing that was really great was I followed the tips from uh, Hugh Newman, who runs megalithomania uk which is a youtube page and a website and um just a really really knowledgeable guy and a great uh team a great channel they put out amazing content um around megalithic structures and all these kinds of uh topics you know neolithic structures mounds giants uh pyramids uh you know the star maps and all kinds of different stuff um actually all around the world, but largely a lot of them in Europe and um, in England, especially in, in the UK. Um, so uh, I watched, uh, I rewatched what his episode about Stonehenge and the current uh, situation with the, the fence and the, you know, having to pay the ticket and when to arrive and da-da-da. And his advice was that you'd actually 
instead of having to pay the whatever it is, £17 uh, ticket to go up to this fence that that uh, goes all the way around the, the, the stones, you can park your car a, a little bit further down in a, in a small road and then just walk a few minutes and then you can walk almost pretty much right up to that fence on one side. So you can't go all the way around, but you can go right up to the fence, uh, the same fence where people who have paid and parked and have tickets and it's all very official. You can just go and enjoy the monument and have your moment and kind of connect to it and, you know, um, feel what's there um, and see what's there and be kind of amazed by it without having to do this this whole hullabaloo of queuing and paying and all this stuff. There's a lot of question marks about <coughs> what that money actually goes towards. And uh, one thing I heard when I was at a different site, I, I overheard a couple of people, you know, fiercely debating the the, the use of uh, Heritage England, I think it's called, is the, the governmental organization, non-for-profit, uh, not-for-profit that takes care of these sites. So when you pay to use them or you pay to park, the money is going to... to preservation that's what they say but very often these sites get closed or abandoned or you know certain things are done and, and you and you just kind of think why like why have they installed this weird little museum thing here instead of just maintaining it as as, as what it is um and you know people have a lot of question marks about those uh those not-for-profits that take care of the sites so i was glad to be able to go and experience it without having to go through those hoops and uh I did for the first time some grounding, so I uh, took my shoes off and socks off and just walked around a little bit, really thought about it, closed my eyes, and I did feel something. I felt I felt a presence, I felt connected. Um, it was it was great. And there was a few things that are also in that area beyond the fence um, that you wouldn't know unless you've you know looked into it and kind of uh, done a little bit of homework, a little bit of studying, watched some videos, read some books about the site. There's a couple of these little posts that are um, marked with a wooden thing on the floor, like a little kind of wooden plaque that mark um, things that uh, posts that would have been there according to mainstream like 10,000, 12,000 years ago. So Whatever Stonehenge is and however it was built and whoever built it, it's still only like half the age of some of these other points that are marked on the ground by these little wooden posts. So, you know, that that's first of all very crazy, very um, uh, not fitting with the uh, official narrative. And then you just see the size of the stones and 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 how um, weathered they are. That's the that's one thing that really blew my mind this time, especially is like they are enormous stones, and they were quarried in Wales and brought all the way from Wales, which is insane. Uh, they were found buried, and then this whole thing was reconstructed. We've got photos of that when they reconstructed Stonehenge. You know, they they used a crane and picked up the stones and set it up as it is now. So we don't even really know what it would have looked like when it was fully in action. And we don't know how long ago that really was because all of the dating is based on the organic materials, on the earth and the ground. You can't date the stone. So we can make assumptions based on the ground that the stone was in. But that doesn't mean that that stone wasn't there a long time before. And some of that weathering just looks like it looks like it's been be being beaten down on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, maybe like tens of thousands of years. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. One of the stones is split in half, and then the split itself, the, the bit that, that should be the sharp split, you know, like a massive piece of stone, you break it in half, the bit where you actually broke it, that bit is weathered incredibly. So... That stone was split either by accident or on purpose in deep antiquity and then has had, after that, tens of thousands of years of, of weathering. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. So, yeah, very enigmatic, uh, very intense sight. Um, another observation was I saw that there were some caravans there and it turns out 
there's some people who live there. Everyone knows that there's, you know, the Druids and, and the um, uh, pagan religion uh, followers and other, um, you know, religious and spiritual traditions that see Stonehenge as a very, very, very important uh, religious historical site. And so much so that some of these people really live there. There's there's people who, for them, this is this is like their uh, their their home. That's where they feel at home, close to this this these stones, these this culture, this this tradition. Um, so that was really amazing. Um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for that. There's something about that that just it made me feel like almost good. I'm like, wow, well, someone is out here doing that. You know, treating this ancient site with that level of respect um, and veneration. You know, I just think there's a there's a place for reverence in all of this. Um, and it's these sites are something that should be treated with respect, you know. Um, most people, I'd say like nine out of 10 people that I saw at all of the various different sites, I'll get into a few of the other ones in a second, were very respectful. And, you know, kind of like uh, walking around, humble, looking around, you know, occasionally touching the stone or taking pictures, taking videos, um, you know, reflecting, talking. And then some people were really into it, like walking around barefoot um, in in, a, in one of the stone circles near Cornwall. I saw a lady doing a, a, a you know, I, I, I don't even know what it what you would call it, but like a routine or a, a ritual. Um, and she's walking around the circle in a specific way, holding a, a feather and a drink that she's drinking and looking to the sky and touching the ground and kneeling down and doing this whole ritual. Um, in a, in a different site, someone was hugging the stones, going one by one and giving the stones a hug. And, you know, there's just all these people who are, who, it means something different to everyone. And it's amazing to see that these people are kind of absorbing the, the energy and creating their own and doing all kinds of stuff in these ancient sites. I found that really, really interesting. And something that triggered me, ugh, I hate it when I get triggered and it's, uh, you know, we're all working on that, trying to, to, to not to have like a short fuse and just to let things wash over and be calm and blah, blah, blah. But there was one one family, there was uh, uh, an amazing thing. It was it was called, it was a quoit. And it was one of the biggest ones that we have in, um, in Britain. So it's like a three stone structure, halfway between Stonehenge and Cornwall. Um, and they they're big stones, three uh, or maybe it was a four stone structure. It's kind of like been stacked like a house of cards, four big stones. And I was just there, kind of looking around, looking at it, taking a couple of pictures, and then a family, a young young couple, parents, and four kids arrived, and they just ran up, and then the kids climbed on the stones, and they were running around. They were using the the biggest stone that's kind of. Uh, at an angle, like a diagonal angle, and they're sliding down it, using it like a slide, throwing their crisps everywhere. And the parents were just like, just allowing it. They, did, they didn't say like, don't do that, or, you know, keep it down, there's other people here, nothing. They were just like, oh, you know, how nice. They're enjoying the, the themselves on this sunny day. And a part of me was like, ah, <laughs> don't you guys realize, like, how possibly ancient this is the fact that this is this thing is very likely on top of a burial ground there might be some very very old remains of important people underneath these stones there's legends of giants and and you know witches and all this kind of stuff and then even if even if you don't believe in any of that it's definitely ancient. It's definitely old. And we shouldn't just be clambering on top of it. I don't know. There was just part of me. I became a grumpy old man in that moment. And um, I felt very, uh, like, personally attacked by these ruffians. But, um, yeah, no. I mean, what can I say? Uh, who am I to judge? I was definitely probably a little shit when I was a kid. And for all I know, you know, 
I've done similar things that other people have looked down on myself. But in that moment, I thought, like, it's really great that most people, like 95% of the people who were kind of kicking about these uh, different sites are treating them with, you know, reverence and respect um, and uh, just, just absorbing them for what they are. So I'll just get into a little bit about one other site mainly. And uh, the other thing I want to mention as well is I'm, I've, I've filmed a lot of stuff. So I filmed a, a lot of content. I took a lot of uh, high quality, like 4K f- video of all of these sites um, and I'm going through the editing process now, so I'm going to start posting some videos um, on a Question This Life video channel. I'm looking into different platforms to do that. I'm looking into uh, Rockfin, Odyssey. Um, there's a whole bunch of ones that I I want to I want to like look into. I'm trying to avoid YouTube. I mean, I you know I'm going to say it bluntly. There, I don't want to be on a platform that um sensors and that you know you can build an audience and get all the eyeballs that you 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 can get and then the minute that you say something that doesn't go with company policy or even if they just don't like you for whatever reason or you just fall through one of these weird algorithms they can shadow ban you they can uh censor you they can delete your account without any explanation i know of people who's who've had that happen to them so I just I just don't want any of that hassle. I would just prefer to start from scratch somewhere where I know the content is going to be safe and wanted forever and not and not kind of be in this sort of uh, limbo with this type of content. I, I talk a lot about esoteric subjects and stuff that's not necessarily mainstream, 100 percent confirmed uh, science in the view of that that kind of a uh, uh, like if you're looking at it through that lens, doesn't mean that I don't want to talk about it. Doesn't mean that I shouldn't be allowed to talk about it. So, if just to avoid having any of those kind of issues in the future, I'm looking for a better uh, alternative to YouTube. So, that's the kind of ongoing work, and I'm gonna post some videos, and I will let you guys know, of course, about the videos when they get posted. But the other main site I wanted to talk about is half an hour away from Stonehenge. So. of people who go to Stonehenge do not go and see this other site called Avebury. This whole area um, between Avebury and Stonehenge and like the surrounding, let's say, 10 miles as a a radius from, from Stonehenge is packed with megalithic sites, ancient legends, uh, all kinds of crazy and wonderful stuff, monuments, mounds, uh, coits, artificial um, uh, like burial grounds and tunnels. And then Avebury is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the biggest standing stone circle in Europe in terms of the circumference and the, the radius, like the, the, the sheer amount of space that it takes up on the grass. Um you go there and that's also a proper heritage site with a museum and a cafe and all that stuff so you can go and park and and go and take it all in but there there are these enormous stones like the size of stonehenge stones and some of them are bigger they're they're fatter they're bigger they're they're a bit more like um they're a bit more sleek like kind of thin but but the surface area of the the two big sides is enormous and they're like two and a half meters tall some of them are re- like roughly the same meters wide uh some of them are half that size and it's just like stone 20 feet gap stone 20 feet gap stone in a big circle and the circle now it kind of goes half on the road half in a field half in someone's farm like you know all of this kind of industrial uh like work uh work and homes and uh, you know, people stuff has kind of been built around it. So it's almost like a little bit drowned in the landscape, but it's still there. Um, and uh, it's really quite a, quite a thing. It's quite a sight to behold. There's a, uh, I also definitely felt a bit of a vibe there. I did like some barefoot walking and just thinking and reflecting and I f- it felt weird. Um, there's, wild animals there's like sheep and um you know little baby sheep and 
grown-up sheep, I guess, uh, walking around grazing on the on the grass and the you know going right up to the stones. There's people like kind of hanging out, like leaning with their backs on the stones, meditating, reading, um, all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, just just around the corner from the Avebury Stone site, there's the largest mound in Europe, the largest artificial mound in Europe. It's thirty meters tall i think it was if i'm not mistaken 30 meters tall um or was it 30 feet that would make quite a big difference one of the two anyway it was enormous huge it was really 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 tall uh you're looking up you're like wow that's a hell of a task to make this whoever made this um and there was also a, a burial chamber uh on the other side of the road this massive stones all kind of arranged in a very specific way again on top of a mound and uh you just think like what was all this for i know that they say what it's for and we've got these explanations and so on but it's just so much deeper like they all have celestial alignments they're made with these stones that were quarried from hundreds and hundreds of miles away they are in very specific parts of the earth you know, across like ley lines and energy, energy lines and all this stuff. And uh, just so, so enigmatic. And um, one, so th those were two monuments that I saw that were very much, you know, there's a heritage center and you can buy a ticket and blah, blah, blah. And all this stuff is very official, very touristy. I saw one which is called um, the Stone Rose, the Three Stone Rose, which is, way off the beaten track you know you go up like a whole bunch of uh, a roads b roads c roads and you're, you're going down these little single track roads um i parked the car and then i was following this map into a field and i was like yep okay so if i go from here to there i'll get to the stones walking up this hill now i think on a private farm and i'm just walking 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 traipsing 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 going up and up and up and up going past cows going past sheep all these different types of plants and stuff, seeing an amazing view of the city, uh, of the town nearby. This is probably like one hour away from Avebury, going west towards Cornwall. It took a long time. It took like an hour to walk up this hill um, through all these different farms and so on. And then eventually I got there, and it is this really, this is a much smaller site. These are much smaller stones. They're not not significant in size. But what's significant is where they are. This is like on the middle of nowhere up a hill. And they are these three stone rows done in a very specific way. And it seems very like ceremonial, like ritualistic. This was done by people who know what they're doing. They did this for a reason. They weren't just head bashing idiot hunter gatherers with, you know, no brain development and just stone lift like that's just not what was going on i don't know what was going on but that's not an adequate explanation for it and um i felt that before i'd visited any of these sites i'd been to stonehenge once but but really seeing a lot of these sites through this lens of potentially we've been told something that's not quite true or maybe there's a lot more information and a lot more detail left to come um that's really like hammered home in my mind the way that i see the world that that you know that the alternative is is probably closer to the truth like i don't know which route you go down do you say that it was uh you know how many years ago who did it how did they do it those are all speculative questions but the one thing that i think i know or at least i'm starting to learn is that uh the, the the truth is way way stranger than than what we're what we're being told on these sites and what's what's the current accepted narrative like the things that you read this is a, uh, an interesting point and i'll leave i'll leave this uh, i'll leave it on this when you go to some of these sites you see these um like touristy information placards everywhere so obviously you're walking and then you get you see this thing it's like blah 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 quite this was erected by so and so in this year and they got the stones from here blah 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 very often and you'll see this in the videos when i send them when i upload them wherever i upload them um you see these this information it says like uh 
experts believe that the you know Romans or whoever the people were excavated these stones from this quarry and likely used this type of pulley system to transport them from here to here and there's a little diagram and then it's like next sentence 2000 years later that it's like whoa 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 so you're saying that that's the explanation for how they got them from there to here like no that's not adequate so like anyone with a common sense mind would know that that's not possible or at least not in the way that they're describing it not with the tools that they had and that then throws into question all of the information on the whole placard and very often they use words like allegedly speculatively and was likely uh and so like they're all speculating every single one of these uh information boards was speculating on the origins of these things and when they happened and how they happened there is no certainty there and it's but it but it's presented as certain like when you say things that are not within the mainstream accepted view they are presented as uncertain but when things that are clearly uncertain and even being spoken about as being uncertain are presented as certain that that makes no sense so we'll get more into that when the videos are live and i'll be able to explain that a little bit better but um yeah for now we're coming up to an hour um it's flown by for me i hope you've enjoyed the episode too if you are a uh, first-time listener, I hope you enjoyed this show. By all means, go back and check out other episodes, see what's going on, see if there's something else that tickles your fancy, you want to get into one of these subjects. Um, if you're a recurring listener, it's nice to have you back. Thank you for tuning in. All that's left to say is thank you very much for uh, listening to the show. It means a lot. You could have been anywhere in the world listening to anything in the world and yet you're here with me now and that's awesome. So thank you very much. See you next time. Catch you later. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Question This Life. You can listen to the podcast at questionthislife.com as well as all of the main podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and get involved.